Well, Rosemary, Joel is enjoying himself in sunny California, so it's just you and me for this episode, and we have a, a special guest here, actually. Rosemary, you want to introduce everybody? Yeah, this is my my little boy. He's four and a half weeks old and just so so keen to get started on engineering communication that he's decided to join the podcast today. <laughs> So we're excited to have him along with us, and we we talk about uh, some really interesting topics this week. Uh, Dominion Energy has finally settled with the state of Virginia on their offshore wind costs, and that's good news. Uh, Spanish regulators have agreed to let Siemens Gamesa be acquired by Siemens in a $4 billion-plus takeover. And Siemens Gamesa is, is also trying to restructure itself uh, as part of its Mistral program to to really um, grow that company. And then we have, Rosemary, I go back and forth about uh, some gravity-based foundations that are being installed in France, which is an interesting technology because it just lowers the cost of foundations. It's a little complicated in terms of of how they're deployed, but it's lower cost, and you think you're going to see that in the United States. And then I I crossed a video from ArcVera uh, recently on YouTube, and everybody should subscribe to ArcVera's YouTube channel because they have really cool things there. But we we talk about uh, wake turbulence on offshore wind farms, and ArcVera has published some of their research in a long webinar. It's about an hour long, but it's well worth the time to to sit through that and understand the difficulties and the the, uh, concerns about wake turbulence on offshore winds. At the end of this, we have an interview with Joel and I do over in Germany. We sat down with Nicholas Godern, CTO of Power Curve. We talk about pretty much all things aerodynamics, lightning, and wind turbine blades. So that's a really great interview. Stay tuned for that. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with Australian blade whiz, Rosemary Barnes, and Joel's centered up in California. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Well, Rosemary, it's it's great to have you back. And Dominion Energy has resolved their dispute with the state of Virginia. Like I said before, when Rosemary comes back, the world starts to settle down a little bit. Things are things are calming down. There's less fires to put out, and one of them is this Dominion Energy state of Virginia issue. And remember that Dominion's going to put about 176 wind turbines off the coast of Virginia. And the state of Virginia, uh, through some of the regulatory bodies, was asking for a 42% capacity factor, and Dominion said no, and very strongly said no. So that went back and forth, and they've been working to settle the disagreement, which is what a good company does. And they have agreed to look at capacity factor, but in a in a situational uh review. So if the capacity factor falls tremendously or by some defined amount, they're going to go to a board and have to explain what's happening. So for example, if they had some sort of serial defect in the wind turbines, they can go to the state and say, look, it's a serial defect in the wind turbines. We don't have to, we shouldn't be held responsible for something that we didn't do, right? That we're working to resolve it. Therefore, the state should give us some leeway. And it sounds like the state's going to do that. But there's also another little piece about the development costs uh, because uh, the state was concerned about how much money 
uh, Dominion may come back and ask the state for it for this project. And they've set some parameters around it. But the parameters are very uh, uh, odd in, in a sense. So Dominion is responsible for the full cost of the project up to uh, $10 billion. So between $10 billion or $10.3 billion and $11.3 billion, if, it, if the range goes somewhere in there, uh, Dominion and consumers are going to pick up those costs. If it goes above $11.3 billion, Dominion is required to pay those additional costs. And then if it gets above the magic number of $13.7 billion, Everybody goes, hold on, we're going to have a review. So there's $3.5 billion, roughly, uh, of wiggle room in this development. So, Rosemary, it seems like the capacity factor, which you said shouldn't be a thing, the capacity factor has been resolved, but they also have this development cost distribution graduated piece are you think this is going to get applied to other projects that are going on offshore in the U.S. or other projects around the world now that this has been established as a framework? It's interesting to see the yeah like three tiered um, plan for if their construction costs overrun, yeah. and well, I think the top tier is like over thirty percent um, cost blowout, which ordinarily would be a lot, but I think that with a lot of projects going on these days, that's the sort of cost increase that you're regularly seeing now. From you know, depending on how long the project planning duration is, but costs can definitely increase that much in um, a normal project time frame now. So it wouldn't surprise right. me if we did get up to that. And then I guess we'll be in a situation similar to some of the other projects where you're all of a sudden, you know, after years of, of planning and business cases and, you know, making sure that everything makes sense, all of a sudden you've got a project that's too expensive to ever make right. money. Um, and, you know, I, I guess at that point you'll see the project cancelled, which I don't know if you start to see a lot of that happening in um U.S. offshore wind, considering that you don't have a lot of completed projects yet, it uh, doesn't sound good for the industry and good for, you know, getting companies to have confidence in the pipeline, the confidence that they would need to start building factories and, you know, training workers and building ships and, and all that sort of thing, um, you know, to implement the ambitious plans right. that the U.S. has for offshore wind by 2030. So I think that's a that's a big risk. Uh, I was really pleased to see that they didn't end up uh, including anything to do with the capacity factor in their performance um, guarantee because, I mean, that just made no sense. And I think that would definitely t turn off future developers if if that, you know, set a precedent. So I'm glad to see that they got rid of that um, particularly silly request that they had. So, yeah, now we just wait and see how much prices go up to see whether this project will actually end up coming off. One of the participants in or co-signers in the Dominion uh, State of Virginia dispute in the settlement was Walmart, of all companies, because they're one of the largest employers, maybe the largest employer in the state of Virginia, and what, they're one of the largest energy users in the state for sure. So that, I thought that was a little unusual that Walmart was actually involved in these negotiations at, su at such a high visible level. It makes you wonder if companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook are involved in energy discussions with state regulators and the operators. Are they, because they use so much energy in different states, do you think they're at the table arguing for, the, for, their, for their company to keep 
energy prices low? I think it probably differs on a, a case by case basis, depending on like how how much of the you know the grid's energy that user is using. So traditionally, the large energy users were like aluminium smelters. I know that in New South Wales, the state that Sydney's in, the aluminium smelter at Tomago uses like 10, 15% of the state's electricity. And so they're absolutely wow. involved in discussions about, you know, um, the, how the grid's going to work and reliability and there's agreements. And, you know, from time to time, they reduce their demand so that, you know, they can prevent um, blackouts and that sort of thing. And I think that the same thing happens with, um, yeah, with, with large energy users, especially like where there's data centers and stuff that can use up a lot of a lot sure. of energy i visited I visited one in um in denmark where that was playing a, a significant role um so i it doesn't surprise me and especially if those energy users have got power purchase agreements ppas with the wind farm that make up a large you know proportion of it then of course they have a massive massive interest in making sure that the deal comes off and um stays at a you know at the price that that is what that they agreed to walmart may have had a hand in the capacity faster discussion they may be in the one that was really driving it because yeah, well, unstable energy would be a problem for Walmart, particularly for a data center. And at the same time, if there's an agreement that the you know drives the company bankrupt, then that is not going to be beneficial for any of those energy users either, because right. then they're going to not have the, the the power that they they have purchased. So I think that they're they're keen to see the agreement work. Rosemary, uh, since you've come back. Siemens has decided to buy the remaining third of Siemens Gamesa. And they've been talking about this for a while, actually. I think back in May, they introduced this concept of buying the remaining third. And there has been uh, more of an effort on Siemens's part to right the ship in some sense, because they already own two thirds of the company. So they offered uh, another $4 billion, roughly, uh, for a little over 4 billion euros for the remaining third of Siemens Gamesa. And the, they offered a premium of like 27% or 25, roughly 25% over the, the existing share price. So that's a pretty sweet offer. And it sounds like Siemens, once this deal goes through and the Spanish regulators have approved it, which they have, that Siemens is going to take Siemens Gamesa off the stock market. So it, it'll be a, a privately held company part of Siemens larger, which I, I think makes sense long-term uh, just to get Siemens Gamesa rolling in the right direction. Uh, a lot of wind turbine OEMs are in financial straits at the moment. I think, and do you think that the Siemens acquisition and just firming up Siemens Gamesa's books is, is a good first step? Yes, I think so. Uh, from working in the industry and I did do little bits and pieces of work with some um, Siemens Gamesa projects, but not a lot, but just the general impression is that the cultures never really meshed that well between Siemens right. and Gamesa. And it did, you definitely always knew if you were talking to a Siemens person or a Gamesa person. And so yeah. I think that from that point of view and that, you know, that continued for years and years after they, they merged, um, so even just from that perspective, it makes sense to me that they would try to not separate out again, but, you know, do something like this to resolve the cultural issue. Because, you know, normally when you merge, it's so that you can find some efficiencies and, you know, remove duplication and save money in that way. 
but since the it still always felt like two companies, I can't imagine that they did that very successfully. So maybe this yeah. is an opportunity now where they can just be all Siemens. Siemens has, you know, they, they basically, uh, my understanding is they bought Gamesa or they merged with Gamesa to get the um, offshore capabilities. Um, right. Now they've, they've got that. They've got a reputation for offshore now. Um, nice. I think that it, it makes sense and is... Yeah, I'm sure that the executives are looking at every option that they can to get costs down and profit profitability up in particular. And I yeah. think this is a pretty pretty good approach to try that. So over the last 12 months, uh, Siemens Gamesa has signed about, I'm going to put this in dollars, all right? So it's about $12 billion worth of deals. They have a backlog of about $35 billion. And the, so the revenue for the last 12 months was about $10 billion but they're going to lose over those 12 months. They're going to lose about a billion dollars. So they brought in 10, spent 11, and they've had a program in place called the Mistral program, which was launched in the spring that was giving them a, a, a way to create long-term stability. Now, as part of that, there's a reorganization that's happening and starting on January 1st. So Siemens buying the controlling interest of Siemens Gamesa is in that timeline of January 1st, we're going to be in a little bit different position as an organization and financially. As part of this Mistral program, they're going to announce layoffs of roughly 3,000 people. But it doesn't sound like they're going to be so much layoffs as retirements early. Uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like they're going to be forced, forced layoffs. It just sounds like they're just going to not hire people for a while. And they brought in... Uh, uh, a new person, a CTO, uh, Morton Pilgard Rasmussen. And on LinkedIn, when that happened, when they made that announcement, there's a lot of, of chiming in with thumbs up for that, uh, that engineers and technical people thought that was a, a good appointment. So things are going to look up for Siemens. Gamesa and Rosemary, you're right. The offshore bit of their business is where they're headed. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the three points they pointed out in, in uh, a press release. They said offshore demand is going to be big and they want to be a part of it. And then they're going to try to obviously leverage some of the relationships with suppliers uh, to provide stability. So th that all makes sense. I think the plan is good. It's just implementing it. And I also think you're right about Gamesa and Siemens just having different cultures and different approaches to designing wind turbines and it looks like that's going to come to an end. They're going to be under the Siemens banner and hopefully one big, happy, profitable company. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. Well, Rosemary, I came across this interesting article talking about gravity-based foundations. So over in France, uh, they're working on a wind farm, the Facomp wind farm. I'm sure I'm butchering that name. There's 71, 71 offshore wind turbines with uh, and each of the wind turbines have a capacity of 7 megawatts. And there's Siemens Gamesa wind turbines. So they're using a slightly different kind of foundation. Here in the States, we've been using monopiles for the most part, but they're using gravity-based foundations and that were assembled at a port um, near the, the final installation. Uh, these are less expensive foundations. So they basically have a concrete bottom and like a steel tube that pops out of the center of them. And they 
are quote unquote float, floatable. I guess some of them are floatable, but these in particular are put on a barge and drug out to the location and a crane picks them up and just drops them to the bottom. Uh, but they use less material. Uh, I guess the only drawback to them is they have to prepare the seafloor to accept them. So they, you got to create a pad on the seafloor so you may end up dredging the seafloor to make it level so when the foundation hits the bottom, it's it's actually pointed in the right direction. Uh, it says oil and gas have used these in the past, and I have seen them in oil and gas, but I haven't seen them used in wind before. Does this make a lot of sense on some of these shallower uh, depths of, of offshore wind. They're making these things up to like 150, well, up to 180 feet tall. So they're fairly tall. They're big, they're big uh, foundations. But does this make sense just because it uses less materials? Yeah, well, I mean, foundations isn't something that I know a lot about, but it is one of the most interesting parts, I think, of the offshore wind race. You know, there's all sorts of different technologies making their way from oil and gas over to um, wind, which makes sense because, you know, oil and gas industries had decades to figure out what works where and under what conditions. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, it's an interesting design. It looks to me like a, just a giant concrete conical flask. You remember from, you know, your high school um, chemistry class, uh, those, those conical flasks? And I saw they've got something I tried cool, to forget. <laughs> you know, I was uh, famous <laughs> in my high school chemistry for setting the setting the um, the bench on fire nearly every time fire was involved, and something would get set on fire. And I, I did continue that through to my professional career. I have I have been involved in a, a couple of burning incidents there too. So um, yeah, that's one of my one of my special skills. If you want to know if your product can catch fire, then get me to test it, and I'll yeah. <laughs> Always trying to find ways to ways to break products uh, as fast as possible, you know, in the in the lab rather than in the field. And yeah, fire is one of my specialties. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, they have a video on the on the website on the article that uh, I read describing it that shows them, and they're nearly five tons each. So you know that's large. They're just you know kind of stacking them onto onto barges and dragging them out and. Um, my immediate thought looking at them was, oh, this must be a less disruptive way for the, you know, for the seafloor. But as you point out, it's it's not just a matter of, you know, dragging it out to sea and just dropping it in the ocean and then it's done. There is a, you know, a bit of preparation that needs to come first. So I'm not sure that they are actually any any less disruptive. But certainly if they're using less materials, then that is going to be a benefit in the, in the long run, especially now when, you know, we see commodity prices are, are so crazy and project costs are blowing out. So right. the less you're using, the less right. scope that there is for, you know, problems to happen. So yeah, looks looks interesting. And um, yeah, offshore foundations, definitely something I've got to get more into and, and learn more about because there's so much different technology and I, yeah, got to, got to find out more. Well, it, it makes you wonder if they're making these foundations for seven megawatt machines, I'd assume you just scaled up for a 20 megawatt machines that that's where we're going in the united states i think we're pushing the boundaries there uh at that point when you have such large turbines costs start to matter because everything grows exponentially right kind of by the cube factor somewhat so it doesn't it make sense if you can put in less expensive uh, gravity-based foundations you're just going to do that yeah it's the square the square cube law um, that describes how how you know things scale, and the topic of a recent video of mine. So thank you for thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> You're welcome. It's it's a really interesting topic though because you know people always think of oh, bigger is better for for wind turbines, and one of the questions that I get asked constantly is what's the optimal size of a wind turbine? How big are they going to get um, before it's you know optimized? 
And my opinion on that is that at any given moment in time, they are optimized. The, the you know, the size that uh, manufacturers are selling is specially chosen to give you the lowest cost of energy. And then as things change, right. like either, you know, cost of something comes down or um, a technology improves, then the optimum size changes. And so that to me is a reason why we see this um, divergence between onshore and offshore wind turbines. The offshore ones are not constrained by transport um, as much as onshore ones um, are. So, you know, like an onshore wind turbine, its blades have to travel on roads. Usually its tower sections have to travel on roads. So they've got like a stronger a stronger phenomenon trying to keep them smaller than offshore wind where you can just build your wind turbine uh, blade or tower factory on the, you know, on the port basically. So it never has to go on a road. And yeah, so that's why I think we see offshore wind turbines getting getting so much bigger um, than onshore. And yeah, so I made a video about it if you want to check it out. Please do. Everybody should check out Engineering with Rosie. There's tons of great information there. I saw an interesting video on YouTube of all places that was off the Engineering with Rosie channel because that's usually where I go every morning is to see what's new on Engineering with Rosie. But Arc Vera has posted a couple of YouTube videos and one of them was of their CEO, Gregory I'm probably mispronouncing that. And he gave, an, it's an hour-long presentation, so you need to go to the ArcVera's YouTube channel and go look for this uh, webinar. But it was about offshore wind flow modeling, and they described some of the results of their research about how far these wakes uh, can progress behind some of these wind turbine farms and how one wind turbine farm can roll into another with its wakes. And when you put two wind farms <laughs> simultaneously, one behind the other, the, th the, the third one aligned line is really getting hammered it's, and it can be up to like 20% losses of energy. And I, I, having checked out that video, there's only been a couple of views on it, but that's an important, really important piece to offshore wind to make sure that when we do develop these sites that we're not losing energy, that we haven't, just like we talked about with Dominion Energy, if the capacity factor drops, they're, they're in trouble with the state. Well, there's a number of times, uh, and the predictions are really good because they actually did the bite area off the coast of New York, Rosemary, where they looked at what those wind farms would run into for several days. I think they looked at like 15, 16 different days from 2021 and modeled it with wind turbines there. It was remarkable. Uh, how much energy loss there would be on, on average is like uh, three five percent energy loss, which is a lot, and in some days up to twenty, maybe a little over twenty. Uh, so I, I, I just wanted to highlight that because these wake wake uh, issues were just getting the computational power and the techniques to do it. And uh, during this presentation, they talk about the the now old technique to predict uh, the the power losses versus this new technique that Arcvera has been working on. It's remarkable. You talked with Jessica O'Connor in San Antonio during ACP uh, this past spring, and she, she, I think she hinted at what this presentation is. Do you want to provide us a little more up information about all the work that ArcVera was doing? Yeah, so they have a, a wake model that they have um, developed onshore, and um, you know they've validated it onshore with with real data. So it's yeah, it's a, a big giant model I, i'm not sure if it's cfd but some kind of atmospheric uh, modeling where they can predict you know how far that the the wake persists behind individual wind turbines and wind farms and they 
thought, you know, like us, it's really interesting that there's all like so many new offshore wind farms planned in this one area and thought, well, why don't we apply this onshore model we've got to this area of the ocean to see what's going to happen when all these wind farms are installed. And the results were surprising and gave a, you know, a much, much, yep. much higher um, loss in energy that persisted much further than you probably would have expected. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head the the figures, but it was you know a few meters per second quite a lot of the time, depending on the wind direction. And I mean the the consequences of that, if it's if it turns out to be true, were going to be pretty profound. I think because people have paid a lot of money for the right to develop these areas. Um, yes. So some of the ones that have got, you know, a, a spot in the ocean that is, you know, particularly unfavorable because there's, you know, a certain prevailing wind directions. And so if you're, you know, downwind from a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of big wind farms, then you're definitely seeing big enough losses potentially um, that your business case would be shot. Um, and then also right. I think it's it's interesting to refer back to, you know, this idea, we talked about the idea of having a um, capacity factor guarantee um, from the, the Dominion project and that's not going ahead. But the normal way that people do performance guarantees is, you know, with some sort of uh, algorithm based on the um, wind speed. And I, I think you'd want to be really right. careful if you've got a performance guarantee like that, you're going to be, want to be really careful to specify exactly where the wind speed is measured because, you know, if you're measuring it at, um, you know, some existing um, MET station that isn't very close to your wind turbines, you might see much higher wind speeds there than what your wind farm is actually seeing and you could end up, you know, with like really severe penalties for underperforming. So that's interesting. Um, I haven't watched this webinar yet, and I I will <laughs> because I find this topic really interesting. It's something it's people good. ask about a lot, yeah. Um, but uh, the last when we talked to Jessica, they hadn't validated it offshore yet, and I assume that's still true because uh, I mean, unless they're going to to Europe, it would be hard to you know you can't validate it in the US yet at that's least because the wind farms don't exist. They did. You know, they're in planning. Yeah, yeah. They did go about to Europe, wind, or they talked about the. Well, they they he was showing images from Denmark, right? What that's where really oh, the biggest okay. offshore site mm -hmm. is. Yeah. So they were showing comparisons between, you know, here's the clouds in Denmark across um, Horn Rev uh, mm. site, and this is computationally what we come up with. It was there is an alignment there. It's it's pretty accurate. And you know, one okay. of the one of the things that uh, Gregory was talking about was the inversion layer when that when air is stable and you get an inversion layer which in the states you get in the mornings and evenings probably like most places in the world where like if you have a chimney and it puffs up smoke it gets up to a certain level just kind of hangs there and stops doesn't rise up anymore when stable air these wakes can get really strong and that's one of the things that their model now incorporates is air stability so they need a whole bunch of supercomputer time to get these models to run. It's really computationally intensive because the atmospheric models and the meteorological models are so integrated in, and then you're throwing in wind turbines and wakes up wind turbines. You can imagine how much computer time that must take to mm. do that. And, and this is the first time I've seen this level of a presentation about wake turbulence offshore. Uh, it's remarkable. And they walk through, like you were saying, they walk through the economics of this, of here's how many gigawatt hours of energy you're likely to lose if you're in this site in the bite, in the bite area. It was re mm. remarkable. And I, it, that needs a little more exposure 
like you and I have been talking about, some of these projects become profitable at the slightest little margins. Mm. Wake vortices can be a, a big impact there. Yeah, I better have them on uh, on a live stream. I better invite them on a live stream of Engineering with Rosie to because um, yeah, it's something I get asked about a lot. And also, you, you know, you see modeling pretty frequently. People um, do modeling of vertical axis wind turbines. Um, this that have the feel of this. It's it feels like those are similar analyses to what they've done here. But in um, and they always get reported very, very widely because the results will usually show, you know, well, wind, vertical axis wind turbines are five times more efficient than, you know, um, at capturing energy mm. out of an offshore area. Um, and my criticism for those models is always they're always two dimensional. They're never validated against, you know, real offshore um, wind farms because, you know, there aren't any big vertical axis wind turbines even onshore anymore. Um, so I always take those results with a grain of salt, whereas this one, at least their onshore work is very well validated and it sounds like I have to obviously watch this webinar to find out what the validation they've done now for offshore, but it sounds like they're starting to validate that too. So, you know, it's, um, it's actually something <laughs> worth paying attention to in, in this case, because I mean, what I found with, um, in my PhD research, I did a little bit of CFD cause I needed to get some load distributions for structural design of wind turbine blade. And, um, while I was, you know, learning how to set up my CFD model, I found you tweak the parameters, right. Then you can get any answer you want. So if you don't have a way to validate your, um, your analysis, then it is absolutely meaningless. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. the most common cause, I think, of people thinking that they have some, you know, breakthrough energy invention that, you know, maybe it breaks the, exceeds the bets limit or breaks the law of thermodynamics. And it's usually because they're, they think too much of their CFD model. So, yeah, validation is the key to that. And that's what really sets this analysis apart. So the, the YouTube channels to subscribe to, probably in order, really, Engineering with Rosie, <laughs> Arc Vera. And then if you have some time, you should subscribe to the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech channel where you can watch uh, uptime, <laughs> the uptime videos, which are really helpful. Make it part of your routine every week. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Well, we are at Wind Energy Hamburg in Hamburg, Germany, of all places. And we're here with Nicholas Gajern. Of course, I got my co-host, Joel Saxon from Sorry. Wind Power Lab. And we're, we're at B6494, which is, which is our home for the next three or four days. Well, we're talking all things wind energy and wind turbines and wind turbine blades. And it's this Nicholas uh, from Power Curve has joined us. And Nicholas has Power Curve all of a sudden, just before the show, I was on yep. my phone and like, oh my gosh, they've got a brand new logo on LinkedIn. And oh, look at this brand new webpage. It's actually a huge improvement. It has a ton Thank of you. information on it, which I always want to see. Yep. You want to explain the new logo, what's yeah, going on? And absolutely. Um, it's, um, it's been a long time in the making, yeah. as, as new websites often are, but we, we knew it was time for a refresh. Uh, we, we weren't really ref reflecting all of the offerings that we have to the market, and I don't exactly. think we were kind of giving people enough uh, 
clues about what to expect from working with us, you know, mm. and, and the service we provide and the level of dedication we have to to our customers and, and making their, their turbines better. So we really wanted to sort of have a bit of a, a clean sweep of everything, make sure the content was fully up to date and uh, just showing all the great stuff we're working on. So we have a new color scheme, we have a new logo, um, yeah, just a whole new visual identity. Rebranded and ready to take over the world? Something like that. Yeah, Something debuting like that. here at yeah. uh, in yeah. Hamburg at Wind Energy Hamburg. Yeah, the, the the website launched yesterday. We wanted to make sure we were just in time for the uh, for the show, and already we've had some some great feedback. Yeah. So, question for you: My one of my favorite features of your old website was the AEP calculator that you had on. Yes. Ah, yes. Is yes. it still there? It is still there. Fantastic. It is still there, yeah. but it's been made even more user friendly. Oh man! Look at you. So you can go through that. You can look at. Um, the kind of business cases you might expect for installing or upgrades. So look at the payback periods, the extra energy you're going to get generated. And it's just now much more easy to navigate to give you that kind of quick uh, check on how, how much money you are missing out on making. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a big topic of discussion, even on the floor here this morning, today's Tuesday, so it's the first day yeah. of the show. And many customers have come by already talking about my blades have leading edge erosion, my blades aren't making the power they're supposed to. It seems to be a pretty constant theme for the yeah. show at this point. What are some of those things that PowerCurve can do to get some of that performance back? Yeah, well there's, there's um, a few different avenues we can take depending on, on what the customer uh, wants and what fits best with, with their operation. So, we have um, like a, a hardware leg, let's call it, where we look at um, offering various solutions to, to boost performance and to recover energy that's being lost from the turbine. And the key product for that is Vortex Generators. Uh, and they can be used in lots of different ways to, to improve the performance of a blade. So that's, that's kind of the solutions um, side of things where it's very much uh, focused on getting equipment onto the blades to make them perform better. But we also now spend a lot of time on uh, digital services. So we, we have a number of tools that we can deploy to help a customer understand uh, the state of their blades and what it means uh, for their production. So if they have uh, damages on a blade defects, if they have uh, LEP, what is that doing to power performance? And is it being done in the most optimal way? What can be done to improve it? Yeah, this, this digital service aspect of, um, of what we do now is becoming really big and we're getting a lot of excellent feedback with, with the customers we're working with. Is, is that the service that you're offering with SkySpecs? That is one of them, yes. Okay. Yeah, so the SkySpecs service um, that we call the Erosion Evaluator, hmm. that is uh, a service that is offered by SkySpecs where all of the SkySpecs data, so all of the structural um, inspection data for any defects or damages on the blade, that is all processed, tagged, categorized, and then PowerCurve use all of that information along with a, a very detailed aerodynamic model of the turbine to calculate the AP loss from those defects. So you then have this amazing tool that says, what am I losing on a turbine-specific basis due to erosion and damages? And then that gives you this very powerful tool to say, well, which turbine should I fix first? Mm -hmm. What sure, should I prioritize? Right. What should I do with them? Yeah. You know, no one's got the money all the time to repair their turbines, all turbines every year. Right. You need a way to prioritize. So a question that Alan and I talk about the differences a lot of times on the show between 
the European markets, the Scandinavian markets, uh, you know, British markets, the US market, and how uh, asset owners treat things differently. Yep. Do you see, uh, with those new digital services, a difference in who's actually asking for them? Is it a lot of people on in the US market? Is it a European market? Who, who's focusing on that from an asset side? Um, I would say we, we have customers in both the US and Europe who are quite focused on the digital services. I would say that the US uh, is more interesting at the moment okay. in terms of the requests we're getting. And I think that tends to be because the wind farms tend to be so much larger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that 1% means a lot to someone with yeah, yeah. 200 turbines out there. Exactly, and you, yeah. and you really do need to prioritize your, yeah. your repairs just because you have so many turbines to deal with. So, right. yeah, I, I think the US is probably um, a key market for that, for that erosion evaluator service. But I think this kind of digital service approach, digital twins, um, really deep understanding. I think all the operators want in on that yeah. now because the OEMs are not making their lives easier. The OEMs do not want no. to share aerodynamic data. They do not want you understanding AP loss. So I think we um, we have a great opportunity there to to educate. Yeah, basically. absolutely. When people need, they need something, they're, they're kind of playing around with, I know there's something here, I'm not sure. Yeah. Call the experts. Yes. Right, yeah. you, you, when, you, when you need to fix your car, these, especially these brand new ones with all the electronics and everything, and you're like, ah, there's something around here. I'm going to the dealership. Like, I, I know they, or, you know, I'm going to go and take that someone that knows what they're doing. So. No, I think, you know, we, we have a really, I would say, unrivaled expertise in blades. And that's not, that's not being uh, big-headed too much, I don't think. It's driven by the fact we've looked at so many blades. We don't just look at Vestas blades. We look at all blades, Vestas, Siemens, G, whoever. And that just gives us a very unique perspective yeah. that I don't think a lot of people have. Understand all the nuances and how they can play together. And if this blade has a little bit of this design, yep. when we go to adjust this blade that's having an issue that's similar to that one, we could just this. Yeah, we can draw on that, yeah. that experience Absolutely. and track record. Yeah, yeah. So one item I want to get to that is new on your website is Aero Lightning. Yes. And so we're introducing this whole new concept to the world this week, which is a combination of lightning in aerodynamics, which doesn't seem obvious at first. And uh, it's just been a partnership between WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, Power Curve, Wind Power Lab, and also Matthew and Ping down in Australia on, on, the, on the monitoring side. But the key feature about understanding what's happened with lightning is in part the aerodynamics around the LPS system, because it's not obvious that turbulence can cause problems for the LPS system. Yeah. And as you've done a, a number of CFD analysis on different blades, the LPS systems are almost always in a really turbulent area, yeah. even new from the factory. You want to describe that a little bit? Yeah, and, and the air lightning thing is is really exciting. And I remember the the first, well, one of the first conversations we had, Alan, uh, quite a long time ago now, yeah. where where you were kind of throwing some questions and problems at me and we were we were sparring about it and suddenly things started clicking, right? That you, you cannot separate aerodynamic behavior and aerodynamic uh, performance and uh, the effectiveness of a lightning protection system. And I think up until this point, they're, they're just treated as com two completely separate boxes with True. different needs and different requirements. And actually, there's so much overlap that you, you have to consider them together. And what we found pretty early on is that if you look at the flow around the tip of a blade, um, you can get some very complicated three-dimensional structures. 
uh, I think a lot of people listening will, will, will know that you have quite a large vortex that's shed sure. from the tip of a blade. Um, that's a very complicated 3D flow structure that drives other 3D flow structures around the tip. Right. Uh, the tip is also the bit of the blade that gets damaged first uh, from erosion and contamination and, and things like that. So suddenly you have a, a very sub-optimal uh, surface, let's call it. You have a, a large vortex structure. You have a design that probably hasn't had an awful lot of attention paid to it because most blades are designed in a predominantly two-dimensional uh, design space. Right, right. So what all this comes together to mean is that you have a very complicated system of flow structures around the tip and you have a lightning protection system that is trying to kind of, uh, you maybe phrase this better, but kind of like, you know, throw ions out into, into the yeah, air. It is, yeah, sure. Um, and they're going to get dispersed. Right. They're going to get blown around by this by this highly turbulent and, and intricate uh, flow structure we see there. So if that's happening, you're not going to get effective lightning protection. You're just not going to get enough strikes hitting where it's safe to do so, so on that, on that receptor pad. So what we found is that if you work hard to control the flow around the tip, right. then you're going to make your lightning protection system much more effective. Yeah, and that's the key is lightning is just hot air, yes. <laughs> and yeah. it's affected by yeah. the airflow of the wind turbine. It's affected by the wind. And if you if your LPS is in a position where there's a lot of turbulence, you gotta remember that the, the blade is rotating 90 degrees, 120 degrees, because lightning is relatively slow. It may yeah. take a half a second, maybe longer to in that time, it. yeah, to attach and to travel behind it. So lightning is constantly chasing the blade around the arc. It has a hard time to do that if it's very turbulent, and lightning will find a place to go. It's mm -hmm. already traveled four, five, six miles to get yes. to the blade itself, and it's looking for this last meter or two, and it's, it will find a home one way or another. And what we're seeing is that the aerodynamic data correlates with the lightning damage data. It's very shocking in, in a variety of different ways. So. Uh, as a lightning engineer, the first thing we look at is where's the lightning attaching? And the question I get all the time is, well, why is it a meter from the tip? Well, it turns out that it's a meter from the tip because that's where the air is clean. clean yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The big and, difference. And I think, you know, the more we looked at it, the more kind of obvious it became that there, there has to be a link yeah. between these two things. And um, yeah, we talk about that on the website and we now have yep. this, this partnership um, with you, Al, and, and, and the other parties. And I just think there's this real opportunity here to, to make a step change in understanding and mitigation right. of, of lightning protection. Yeah. Because for too long, it's just involved zapping things that are stationary on a test rig. <laughs> right. yeah, and true. that's not good enough. Yeah. No, as spinning. we found out, it's not, right? All the IEC testing that's done, and there's a lot of IEC testing done, particularly on new blades. Yeah. And that's always very successful, at least the, the information I get it on new blades is we pass the IEC test, which right. it should. But when they get in service, the results are totally different. So you're talking with these brand new blades, uh, clean surface like this table we're sitting on, right? Everything is nice. The corners are, you know, the leading edge perfect. looks perfect. Everything, yep. and the wind flows a beautiful way over that, or the air flows a beautiful way over that in a CFD analysis in the design phase or right out of the factory. But if you put that blade as soon as, you know, one year in, yep. you're already getting erosion on the tip. Two years, three years, four, five, six. And if it's not maintained, all of a sudden that tip is you're not getting near the same CFD uh, analysis if you did it again with right. the, all those damages and erosion and all those things. So you get this dirty air and, and this is what the, the well, aerolighting product Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the default place to put a receptor is maybe, you know, 
half a meter, maybe less, maybe even less than that, away from the tip. Yeah, right. So you're putting it in the most challenging area for the yeah. lightning to, to make that connection. Right. So, and that's what we see. We see so many strikes that are occurring, as you sound, one meter, two meter, three meters away from the tip. The lightning wants an easy life. It does. <laughs> it needs one. It needs one. Yeah, it yeah. needs one. You don't see, like, from the wind power lab, lab side of things, we're always looking at bulk data, right? We're looking at, what, right. you know, a wind farm's full of inspection data. What does it look like here? What does it look like here? And when you see a wrong lightning attachment, it's never on the tip. Right, it's somewhere like, else. Yeah, it's usually yeah. they're usually in these weird spots, and, and the, we're like, why does why you know prior to these conversations and, and going mm -hmm. through this, why does this always seem to happen in this spot? Well, that's where the air finally got clean. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah. as simple as that. Yeah, and that, I think that's the really important key here is when we start looking at lightning protection. We have a lot of people just this morning yeah. reaching out about lightning protection on blades that had massive damage, hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage to blades. My first response is we need to look and see what the CFD says about your blades. Because we would love to put strike tape on everything. I mean, that's our, right. that's our core product. That pays the bills, right? Yeah. yeah. But we're not going to do it until we are sure that we're going to have the, the maximum lightning protection we can provide. And that requires some CFD analysis right. and talking to Wind Power Lab about the blade structure and what's happening on the inside that we need to know about. It's a system, right? It's a complicated it's a system. system. It's a complicated system. You have to look at it uh, yeah. as such. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the more complicated systems, maybe besides blade de-icing. Yes. <laughs> Those are probably the two, the two most complicated systems because yeah. they touch so many areas that uh, it's, it's, it's a very difficult challenge. I think we're finally up to the challenge now. I, I think this team here is going to be able to deliver on what we're yeah. talking about. And every customer you've talked to over the last week or two or three is really engaged with it yeah. because it, it makes sense. Finally, lightning makes sense. That's why I had a lightning strike right there. Right. Yeah, that's right. It's, it, looks, it seems obvious now, but... Yeah. A year and a half ago, it wasn't, no, it wasn't obvious. No, not at all. Yeah. You're starting to see the, the one of the reasons this product comes up as well as the markets are starting to adjust to it. The insurers, you know, at some levels don't want to insure some lightning protection systems because they don't work, yep. right? So right. This, is, this is a way to solidify that market and take the risk out of it. And in the whole scheme of things, it lowers the levelized cost of energy for everyone. Because yeah, insurance premiums can come down, yeah. people can get back on risk. The operators aren't, you know, a blade fold. If if one blade goes, and it folds over, maybe it hits the tower. Maybe you just have to replace that one blade. If you have to replace all three blades because of weight certificates or something, you're talking a million and a half dollars. Right. And whether that's on the insurance company or the asset owner or the OEM, that raises the cost of energy for everybody. Yes. Right. So if yes. we can if we can do our part by lowering everything in the in the market and reducing that risk, it's a win. Absolutely, yeah. and that was again another thing that happened this morning was the number of times it was three or four times just this morning mm -hmm. where uh, potential customers or people experienced in the industry were talking about insurance, how they're yeah. in a fight with the OEM or they're in a fight with the insurance company because they had a lightning strike and the lightning strike caused a bunch of damage, right. which it doesn't always do, but when it does, it becomes massively expensive. It's not a quickie fix, as Wind Power Lab knows. Yeah, 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 absolutely. They can be a, a lot more deeper inside and then those yeah. get super expensive quickly. So there's just, hopefully we're adding to that conversation, adding to the discussion and just raising awareness. And yeah. I, I think that's probably the most important part. Yeah. This is why I like the website, by the way. Just because it, it starts to tie it together. Yeah, and that's that's what we, we just realized that um, we were very focused on on a product right. for a long time, sure. and our main product was vortex generators. That's fine, but you know, it's just so much more than that. It's about that relationship with the customer. It's about right. sharing knowledge and understanding, and building 
a trust that that we know their blades better than almost anyone else. Right. And that means we can offer yeah, the solutions, we can offer the consultancy, the digital services. So we've got all these things in the toolbox that allow them to know their blades better than better than the OEM. Right. Um, yeah. It's a bold claim, but I mean, I, I think compared to the state now, general state, I, it's probably uh, fair. I think a lot of OEM <laughs> customers would agree with you. Yes, yeah, exactly. Point, yeah. And it would, just walking around the floor, we, we got a preview last, last evening. Uh, to walk around the different places of the floor. There are a couple of other companies that are offering blade add-ons. Mm. But here's, here's what I see that makes Power Curve just completely different than the majority of the rest. It's the ability to understand what's actually happening on the blade and to, to do that CFD analysis and, and to have the actual blade scan. It's not a theoretical model yep. of a blade, but to, to scan a blade, get the real blade, and do a, a really tight analysis so that what you get see on the computer screen is ac actual. Better probably, it, it's, it allows you to do those little fine details in terms of like VG placement that gets you a, a, another half a percentage point. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's um, a lot of the devices, uh, particularly Vortex generators, they're well known, right? Sure. They've been around a long time. Yeah. OEMs use them. So they're, they're a proven technology, but that kind of doesn't really do the engineering justice. Yeah, they're proven, but that, that doesn't mean you can just chuck them on the blade and they work. You have as we've to, seen. Yeah, as we've seen. <laughs> yes. You have to do a lot of very careful and diligent engineering. You have to understand the root causes of the problems. And yeah, and that involves getting real blade geometry and doing proper modeling and proper analysis. Yes. Um, and just take the guesswork out of it. And right. That's, that's what we spend our time doing. Right. And sharing that with the customer. Yes. You know, we'll, we'll share our CFD results, we share our modeling results. There's, there's nothing hidden. We want to have that conversation and, and be open because right. then everyone, everyone wins. So having those, that customer be involved with the process yes. is huge because they don't tend to be CFD analysis No, people. but what they do know is they know uh, the performance of their turbines best than anyone. Right. They know what's going wrong with them. They know the nuances of each machine. They, they know the local climate conditions and the service histories. And so we take all that in. We listen to them and we take that into our analysis and, and our uh, design process when we're designing the kits. And I think that is what sets us apart, that attention to detail and that focus on listening to what the customer knows. And they know a lot. They do. They know That's so true. much. Yeah. So that's, yeah, we take it all in. Well, Nicholas, it's been really great to see you in Hamburg. Uh, we get to see each other occasionally at conferences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like three or four times a year we cross paths somewhere on the planet. So it's good to see you again. I'm really excited about the website. Congratulations on the Thank website. You. And uh, congratulations on all the CFD work you've been doing on Aero Lightning. So it's been a busy, it's been a busy couple has, of months, but you, finally, you made it to the show. That's congratulations. So no, it's, thanks it's great to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you too, and, and you too, Joel. And um, I'm really glad you, you liked the website. You must have been uh, one of the first views, I think. I gave you the thumbs um, up real quick. It was awesome. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I, hope, I hope some of our listeners will uh, will check it out as well. So there's a lot of really uh, nice information on there. We'll put the, the link in the show notes so everybody can see it. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.